Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Yes, that's me, Melissa Canchola, and we got the lesson for today. This is called Ten Attributes of Jesus. This was with Dr. Valdi Balcom. Here on Truth Be Told Radio. that a pastor is not really a pastor until he has conducted a few killings. It has also been said that a church is not really a church until it's had a few funerals. Mainly because death punctuates our existence like a series of commas reminding us that this life is not all we have, reminding us that there is an age to come. And although death comes and feels like the world stops, the fact is it doesn't. Death is not a period, it's a comma. And when it comes to our household, to our family, to our loved ones, We're reminded as we look outside that the rest of the world keeps going and that eventually so too must we. We we must continue to put one foot in front of the other and do those things that are required of us and continue to live our lives. That is until the comma comes for us. But the fact of the matter is these commas, that punctuate our existence are merely a reminder that things are not always going to be as they are. One day, in fact, death won't be a comma. It won't even be a period. It will be an exclamation point. At the end of the age, all things come to an end. There's going to come a day When no one wakes up the next day and looks outside and sees everything continuing on like it used to. When no one will merely have to remind themselves of the need to put one foot in front of the other and to continue to make it through the struggles and the difficulties of everyday life. There's going to come a day when everything ceases. When the world as we know it is no more. When we will face God, that's the reality. And that's what we see pictured at the end of Revelation chapter 14. This picture of the great harvest at the end of the age. And the way that John depicts this picture is rather matter of fact and in some ways quite gruesome. It is not pretty. It is not pleasant. But it is real, and it is true, and it is coming. And so we need to make ourselves aware and prepared. Look with me, beginning at verse 14 of Revelation chapter 14. 
and let's look here at the harvest of the earth. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, the 1600 stadia. Succinct, matter of fact, to the point. There are so many things described here. And as we go on in Revelation, these things will be described in great detail. But remember what is happening in verses 12 through 14 is really a summation. John is summarizing this picture of the judgment of God, of this great war, of the false trinity, of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, over against the holy trinity, the unholy trinity, over against the holy trinity of the Father and the Lamb and the Holy Spirit. Then there's this picture of Christ standing on Mount Zion and the 144,000 representing the fullness of the people of God standing there. And there is this worship that originates in heaven and impacts the earth. Beyond that, there is this picture of the judgment that is coming as three angels come and make three different proclamations. But as these three angels make these three different proclamations, we're reminded that their proclamations come when it's almost the end. And that, in fact, it is merciful that these proclamations are made before the end comes. There is this sense of swelling urgency as everything moves towards finality. And then here, in these last two paragraphs, the finality comes. There are two parallel vignettes. And in these two parallel vignettes, in both of them, there is one with a sickle. In both of them, there is an angel coming from the temple. In both of them, there is the command to reap with the sickle. In both of them, there is the reaping. No fanfare. Celebration with the one or weeping and wailing with 
cry that says reap. Not even a response that says, okay, there is reap, and then the whoosh of the sickle, and the reaping is done. As I pondered this picture, I began to ask myself what it was that I was seeing, what it was that was important here. In one sense, there really isn't uh, that much to it because there's not a lot of detail, because there's not a great deal of explanation. So in the one sense, you could just look here and talk about these symbols and what these symbols represent and the fact that, once again, we have seen the picture of the judgment of God. But everything continues to come back to the one who is on the white cloud. And ultimately, when your focus goes there, you realize that the one that you have seen here on the white cloud is also the one who was standing on Mount Zion. But this is a picture of Christ. This is a picture of Christ at the end of the age. This is a picture of him overseeing the consummation of all things. As I looked, there were several things that I saw about Jesus, and I had to pare these things down because I began to see more and more and more as I looked. So I pared them down to ten things that this harvest teaches us about Christ. Number one, it teaches us that Christ is righteous. There is a picture here of the righteousness of Christ. First of all, because he is on this white cloud. Now, there are many depictions of clouds in the Bible, depictions of clouds even in Revelation. But what's distinct here is that this cloud is white. You don't find that anywhere else. Just here, there's a picture of this cloud being white. We've seen white a number of times in Revelation. We'll see white a number more times in Revelation. But when we see it, what does it depict? Well, there are the saints who are in white robes. What do these white robes represent? Righteous deeds. Later on, we're going to see the bride who has made herself ready for the marriage of the Lamb. What is she wearing? She's wearing a white gown. What does this white gown represent? The righteous deeds of the saints. It is a picture of righteousness. So here is one who is seated not just on a cloud, but on a white cloud. There is a picture here of righteousness, which is incredibly important as you begin to talk about judgment. Because judgment requires righteousness. In order to exact judgment, one must be righteous. And if Christ is anything, Christ is righteous. This is a picture that is brought forth from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So there is this picture of the one who is on the white cloud. There is also a picture here of a distinction between the one who is on the white cloud, like the Son of Man, and the Ancient of Days. That's important. We're going to see that here in Revelation chapter 14 as well. Jesus is associated elsewhere with clouds. 
Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, referring to the end. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Remember Christ at his ascension. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up on a cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How? On a cloud. And now, what does John, who, by the way, was there, tell us about Jesus at the end of the age? He looks and he sees him on a white cloud. Not just a cloud, but a white cloud. This is a picture of the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is essential to understanding this passage. It's essential to understanding the book of Revelation. This is all about the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness in that he is judged, but he also his righteousness in his redemption of his people. Folks, Christ is righteous both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, he's righteous because of who he is. His very nature, his essence, he is God. In him there is no shadow of turning. In fact, being God, he defines righteousness by his very existence. Righteousness can't be defined outside of God. In order for righteousness to be defined outside of God, there would have to be something more righteous than God. But there is nothing more righteous than God. So God defines righteous. What he does is right, simply by virtue of him being the one who does it. He can only do right. He is objectively righteous. But then Christ is righteous because as the last Adam, he was completely obedient, kept the law in full, and was actively righteous, subjectively righteous. So not only objectively and intrinsically is he righteous by his nature, but in his Life in his incarnation, he personifies righteousness as he keeps the whole law for his people. Christ is righteous. This is important. Second thing that we see here is that Christ is incarnate. Notice the picture that he sees. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. There's a reference here to the Son of Man. Took on a human nature at his incarnation. And although he is glorified and exalted, he remains forever theanthropos, the God-man. Christ took on a whole other nature. God took on manhood. He took on humanity. He grew up. He hungered. He thirsted. He bled. He died. He has a body. And when he returned to glory, he returned with his body. Christ did not become disembodied, nor 
in the age to come will we be disembodied, but we will be reunited with our bodies. So Christ, the incarnate God, remains the incarnate God. His body is glorified, but he still has a body. You know, his favorite term for himself during his incarnation, during his time here on earth, was the Son of Man. He referred to himself again and again and again as the Son of Man. He even uses the title when he describes his role in this very event in John chapter 5. Jesus says, beginning in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's a picture of what we see here in Revelation 14. This is that event at the end of the age. And when Jesus describes his role in the events of the end of the age, he uses this phrase, this term, this title, the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a reference to him as the Son of Man. And here in Revelation chapter 14, borrowing from Daniel chapter 7 and in keeping with what John would have heard from Jesus for three and a half years, he makes reference to one who is like the Son of Man. This is the incarnate Christ. This is God the Son who still has a body. We also see that Christ is king. Behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head. Christ is the king. Earlier on in Revelation, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John introduces us to the Jesus of the apocalypse. And he writes grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. There is the Father from the seven spirits or before his throne. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the complete spirit of God. And from Jesus Christ, and here's a trifold expression of who Jesus is, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and then thirdly, the ruler of the kings on the earth. He is the ruler of the kings on the earth. So here's the white cloud. Christ is righteous. Here's the Son of Man. Christ is God incarnate. And here's the throne on his head. Christ is king. So because he's righteous, he deserves this role that he has at the end of the age. Because he's the incarnate God, he is worthy of this role that he has at the end of the age. And because he is the exalted king, he deserves this role that he has at the end of the age. But remember, in the first of these three messages on Revelation 14, we referenced Psalm number 2. Look at Psalm number 2 again. 
beginning of verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's on Zion? Christ is on Zion at the beginning of chapter 14. Now, here at the end of chapter 14, he is seated on a white cloud, and he has a crown on his head. Why? To reference the fact that he is king, that there is no authority higher than his authority. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. That's who Christ is. He's the righteous, incarnate God, and he is king. He is ruler. And if we are not thinking about Christ in these terms, we are not thinking about him rightly. If you're just thinking about Christ as your good buddy, you're not thinking about him rightly. Is he your friend? He's a friend if he sticks closer than a brother. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But he's king, and don't you ever forget that. It's easy to forget yourself as we grow closer to Christ. It's easy to forget who he is. I love the way that this is captured by C.S. Lewis. Regardless of what you think about the Chronicles of Narnia, regardless of, you know, where you think theologically it's appropriate or inappropriate or whatever, none can deny the fact that there is this beautiful picture of Christ as the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I love when speaking of Aslan, it is said, tame lion. Amen. He's not a tame lion. Christ is king. He's sovereign ruler. And just because he's kind and gracious to you, don't you dare forget that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's not to be toyed with. He's not a tame lion. Fourthly, Christ is divine. He is the eternal Son of God, doing the will of his Father. There's a question here. Why is Christ receiving an order from an angel? Some have even argued that this is not Jesus, but it's a high-ranking angel. And it has to be. Why? Well, go back with me to verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. If this is the Son of God, why is he receiving orders? Um, Because he always has. How many times did Jesus say to his disciples, he did nothing of his own accord, but in obedience to his Father? He is the eternal Son of God, doing his Father's will, doing his Father's bidding. This is who he's always been. Folks, Christ is superior to the angels. We know this. In the book of Hebrews, we see it again and again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He's superior to the angels. So the text here can't be saying that this angel is superior. 
He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. So why then is the angel giving him the order to reap? He's pointing to the fact that although Christ is exalted, and although he's gone from his humiliation to his exaltation, although he is seated at the right hand of the throne of his Father, he is still the eternal Son of God and does the bidding of his Father. In fact, here's the other thing that's interesting. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Remember what Jesus says it. It's it's striking that God the Son says, concerning that, the Father has that information. The angels don't know that, and the Son doesn't know that. Now, here's the picture. He's seated on a white cloud with a crown on his head, and he's got his sickle in his hand because he knows what's going to happen. But notice where the angel comes from. The angel comes from the temple. What's in the temple? The throne. Who's on the temple? The one who was and is and is to come. So the father says to his messenger, tell my boy it's time. The angel comes from the temple and announces with a loud voice the word that has come from the temple and the eternal Son of God, who was obedient even unto death, only reaps when the Father says, it's time to reap. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He hasn't stopped being the Son of God. Christ is Redeemer This is the distinction between these two vignettes They're almost identical But what separates them Is the identity Of the one seated On the cloud Versus the other angel And secondly What it is they reap Consequently The results But look at the first one Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. By the way, first let me answer a question that I didn't answer before. Because here's the question that comes. He says here, another angel. Which again is why some argue that what we're seeing here on the cloud is not Christ but an angel because John says another angel. Folks, when he says another angel, he's referring to the three angels who made proclamations. Then he says, after the proclamation, remember, we have to do this in bite-sized chunks week after week, but it was meant to be read altogether. Amen? So there's an angel who makes one proclamation of this eternal gospel. There's another angel who makes the proclamation about fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great. Then there's another angel who makes a proclamation about drinking the dregs for the judgment of God. And then he says, after he sees the one seated on the cloud, and another angel. That's the reference to another angel, not that the one on the cloud is an angel. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, sat, so he was out on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This reaping is not a reaping for judgment. This reaping is a reaping of the harvest 
of the Redeemer who is reaping his redeemed every week when we pray. Every week in our program, we pray for an unreached people group. And every week, there's the same passage referenced as we pray for an unreached people group. Why? Why do we continue to put before ourselves the need to pray for people who haven't heard the gospel? Because in Matthew chapter 9, we read, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Christ. Who reaps the harvest at the end of the age? Christ. Because it's his harvest to reap. We work in the harvest, but he's the one who reaps the harvest. This is the harvest of the Redeemer. This is the harvest of the redeemed. Christ will have the fullness of his reward. Matthew 13, 30. You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? How does this resolve? Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. This is the wheat harvest. This is the wheat harvest. And Christ gathers in the wheat harvest because Christ is the Redeemer. But six, Christ is also judge. The sickle is symbolic of judgment. And Christ sits on this white cloud with a sickle in his hand. And it is symbolic of judgment. But, but wait a minute. But, but he's the one who reaps the grain harvest. He's not the one who reaps the harvest of the grapes of wrath. So wouldn't the other one be judgment? No. Folks, the salvation of God's elect is an act of judgment on the non-elect. When Christ reaps those who are his, and we enter into our eternal reward, that is part and parcel of the judgment on sinners. That they're not part of that harvest. There's also a sense in which Christ is judged because Christ is the one who determines who's reaped in this first reaping. The command comes, it's time to reap and reap. Notice that Christ doesn't reap everything. There's some that's left, and it's left for the winepress of God's wrath. How do you determine who is reaped as the wheat harvest and who is reaped for the winepress of God's wrath? You determine that if you are a righteous judge, and that's who Christ is. And as the righteous judge, he determines who's part of the wheat harvest. He determines who's his. Because the Redeemer is the judge. Matthew seventeen twenty nine to 31. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's going to judge the world, and he's going to judge the world by a man who was raised from the dead. That's who we see seated on the white cloud with a sickle in his hand. He is the judge. But even in him being the judge, we see another picture. Seven, Christ is long-suffering. Christ is long-suffering. We have sort of the redemptive history mapped out before us in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But folks, this is a depiction of thousands of years. Not decades, not centuries, but millennia. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. Christ is long-suffering. In Revelation chapter 6, we get a picture of this. Do you remember the cry of the martyrs? The martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do you grasp that? There are martyrs who have been faithful to Christ, and they've been killed because of their faithfulness to Christ. And they say, how long? How long before you avenge us? Jesus' answer is, wait, because there's more of my people to be killed before I exact vengeance. God is long-suffering. God is patient. And before you get upset with God for being patient, be very careful. (laughs) Because every time... You take a breath to say, God, why have you not judged sinners already? Please remind yourself that you too were in that very condition, and it was the patience of God and the long-suffering of God that waited until the moment of your salvation, and you were able to come in to the wheat harvest and not be counted in the other harvest because of the long-suffering of God. He waited for you. He was patient with you every day of your life before you came to Christ. It was a day when you had heaped up condemnation and were worthy of the winepress of the wrath of God every day. Every day since then, you have thought things and said things and done things. That made you worthy of this same winepress of God's wrath. But God is patient. This is what is meant in Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
if you follow the pronouns in this whole chapter, that you refers to the beloved, facing toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christ is long-suffering. And the reason that Christ is long-suffering is because the fullness of his reward has not yet been attained. Eight, Christ is faithful. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. And there in 2 Peter 3, the scoffers are asking, where's your God? Where's his justice? Where's his judgment? Where's his deliverance? Where is it? Where is it? With the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And no matter how long it takes, you rest assured, he's faithful. And if he says it, it will come to pass. Because what he says, he will do. Why? Because he's righteous. The righteous incarnate God. And he is faithful. Remember that, saints. He is faithful. You remember that too, sinner. He is faithful. And just because you've gotten away with it up to this point doesn't mean that you're going to get away with it, period. Just because the justice of God has not come to you doesn't mean that there is no justice of God. God is faithful. And that works both ways. It works on both harvests. God is faithful. Number nine, Christ is victorious. His enemies will be judged. Folks, he is more than lowly Jesus, meek and mild. He is not some sissified Christ. This is the God-man, a righteous judge with a sickle in his hand. Later on, we're going to see him riding in on a white horse with fire in his eyes and a sword on his, a sword on his thigh. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the judge of all things. So though in the second vignette, there is this picture of an angel coming with this sickle. Look in the second vignette. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and the earth of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is a picture from Joel 3 and 13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. There's also a picture here from Isaiah 63.3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. 
their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This is a gruesome picture. It is a gruesome picture of the victorious Christ. This is God's victory over sin. This is God's righteousness poured out. Remember, there are those two pictures of wine in judgment, and one is the dregs and the sort of hyper-fermentation of the wine that leads to this drunken stupor on the wrath of God, and the other picture is the picture of the fresh grapes being crushed and the picture of the blood running. 1,600 stadia, as high as a horse. It's like as high as a horse for almost 200 miles. This is a gruesome picture of the victory over God. But remember where we started? This is a war. By the way, this also dispels a great myth. There is a great myth out there that things are actually in doubt, that there is God on one side doing the best he can and the devil on the other side doing the best he can, and they duke it out. And sometimes God gets the other hand, and sometimes the devil gets the other hand. And sometimes, folks, the future is not in doubt. Christ will be victorious. In fact, Christ is victorious. We are merely waiting. The one seated there on the white cloud is not biting his fingernails. The one seated on the white cloud is merely waiting for the word to come from the throne room. He knows it's going to come. He is victorious. He's merely waiting for the fullness of the wheat harvest. But his victory is secured. Ten. And finally, we see here that Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. Worthy of what? Yes. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy to judge the world because he's God, because he's righteous. Christ is worthy to wear the crown because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Christ is worthy to reap the wheat harvest because he is the redeemer of God's elect. Christ is worthy to reap the harvest of the grapes of the wrath of God. Why? Because vengeance is his. But here's another thing. Christ is worthy of our worship. Why? Why? Oh, it was so hard to not deal with this all last week, but to wait until this week. He is in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. the name Gethsemane, a place where the grapes are crushed. And here he is being crushed under the weight of sin and under the weight of God's judgment. And he says something that you don't get unless you get this. Christ says, let this bitter cup from me. What cup? The cup of the wrath of God. 
Why am I not part of the harvest of the grapes of wrath? Why don't I get that? Because I deserve it. Why? Because there is another who drank the cup on my behalf. There is another who was crushed under the weight of God's wrath, whose blood was spilled on my behalf. There is another who died the death that I owed. He was completely righteous so that he might impute his righteousness to me. And he was completely obedient so that he endured the wrath of God on my behalf and took my sinfulness in himself and paid the price. only reason that anyone is part of the first harvest and not the second is because Christ has tasted fully the last harvest. He drank the bitter cup that was prepared for me and then turned around and gave me another cup, the cup of the new covenant. He takes the dregs and gives me the finest of the wine. His body is broken so that mine can be made new in the age to come. Endures the wrath of Almighty God so that I might experience the embrace of a long-lost son. Christ is worthy. These two vignettes say at least these ten things about Jesus. But they also say a few things to us. I'll leave you with these. First, it says to us that our redemption is secure. Our redemption is secure. Why? Because it's not in my hands. It is in the hands of the one seated on the white cloud. The one like a son of man with a crown on his head and a sickle in his hands. My redemption is secure, no matter how long it takes. Secondly, our number is not complete. Our number is not complete. Christ will have the fullness of his reward, the fullness of the reward for which he died. That fullness had not yet been achieved. Our number is not complete. Our work is not done. Thirdly, this means our gospel will bear fruit. Our gospel will bear fruit. Why? Because our number is not complete. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So our gospel will bear fruit. It will. It will. Our gospel will bear fruit. Why? Because it's not dependent upon us. Four. Our home is not here. These vignettes remind us that our home is not here. We, like the patriarchs, are 
looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Finally, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Folks, if our hope was in anything else, we wouldn't have hope, we'd have despair. But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the righteous Redeemer and Judge. Our hope is in the one who is seated on the right hand of his Father forever making intercession for us. Our hope is in the one who says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll return and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I'm going, you know. And the way, you know. And there's the question that comes from Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is our hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, who who could have imagined that there could be so much hope in such a gruesome text? And yet, there it is. The hope that is ours. Because of the judgment and wrath of God poured out on his son on behalf of his elect. picture of wrath that helps us to at least begin to grasp the magnitude of your grace toward us. To at least begin to grasp the magnitude of the mercy of Christ and his sacrifice. Lord, would you continue to call those under the sound of our voice as we proclaim the gospel to continue to bring others to repentance and faith. Lord, even here, even now, even today, even the one listening to my voice, grant by your grace that they would see these two vignettes and find themselves and that as they find themselves they wrestle with you and come to you in repentance and faith in order that they might not be represented in the second vignette, the grapes of wrath, but in the first, in the wheat harvest. Grant by your mercy that hearts would be softened, that sinners would come, that Christ would be glorified, and have the fullness of the reward for which he died. 
this we pray, because we believe it to be in accordance with the will and the nature and the authority of the one seated on the white cloud with a throne on his head and a sickle in his hand and justice and mercy to me now. This is Ken Ham, author of the book Divine Dilemma about a loving God in a fallen world. Today is 9-11, the sad anniversary of the terrorist attack on America. This event shocked America. Many wondered, where's a loving God in this tragedy? Immediately after, many pastors interviewed on television declared, we don't know why these things happen. We just need to trust God. And while we do need to trust God, we can know the big picture for why tragedy happens. This groaning world isn't the world God made. He made a very good creation. We broke it because of our sin. Death and suffering aren't God's fault. It's ours because of sin. But God made a way to restore his creation and save us from our sin through his son, Jesus. Learn more about death, suffering, and a loving God when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged from God's word when you go to AnswersRadio.com. I'm sorry, my husband's a militant atheist. I, I apologize. Can I give you a book for him? You think there's life after death? No, I don't. Why do you think like that? Well, because we've evolved over millions of years, and, you know, we're just organisms that uh, have a period of time on this planet, and then we die. So you're a believer in evolution? I certainly am. Could you give me scientific evidence for Darwinian evolution, not adaptation, but Darwinian evolution? You and me standing here. Well, that's not evidence. Yeah, of course it is. Why? Well, because you know, the planet, you know, several billion years ago... How do you know that? Had, well, because of fossil evidence. You believe the fossil evidence? I do. So it's a blind faith? No, it's not a blind faith. It's actual fact. It's not superstition or anything. It's absolute fact. It doesn't pass the scientific test. You can't... You can't no, you can't test it. You can't test evolution. You can go back and see the fossil evidence and see how animals and the creatures have evolved. Are you an atheist? Absolutely. God, I mean, it's just nonsense. It's okay. just people are wasting their lives, you know, for preaching and uh, going to church and that. You know, just enjoy life. Can I check something? Yeah. You're not going to run off on me, are you? Because I, I like interviewing you. You sound very intelligent and very eloquent, and I don't want you to run off. Will you stay with me? There are two things that I've found after witnessing to a lot of atheists. The first is that most atheists don't have the courage of their convictions. When it gets uncomfortable, they run away. It gets too hot in the kitchen. And I felt this was going to happen with this man because he was leaning slightly forward. And the second thing is that when they're given undeniable evidence of the creator, instead of conceding, they immediately move the goalposts by asking, who made God? Here's Richard Dawkins and friends a number of years ago being asked an embarrassing question. Is there any evidence you've been given that stumped you? And Dawkins points to the fact that everything created shows design and order. I have a question for the three of you. Is there any argument for faith, any challenge to your atheism that has given you pause, that has sent you back on your heels where you felt you're, you didn't have a ready answer, etc.? 
I can't think of any. I mean, I think the closest is, is the idea that the, uh, the fundamental constants of the universe are too good to be true. It certainly doesn't in any way suggest to me creative intelligence because you're still left with the problem of explaining where that came from. No, you're not. If I use logic to establish every painting had a painter, you don't get rid of that logic by saying, oh, but where did the painter come from? They're very predictable and disingenuous. Watch what happens. Oh, answer me this. As an atheist, do you really believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? I'm not saying there was nothing in the beginning, but an atheist believes that nothing was the prime mover that gave us flowers and birds and trees and seasons, puppies and kittens and male and female and all the species. But, but then the alternative, if you believe a god, where did a god come from? But then the alternative, if you believe a god, where did a god come from? No, god no, no, god no. must have come from somewhere. I'll answer your question in a minute. You, you, you answer mine. You answer mine yeah, first. That is, is quite complicated because it is nothing, but then there's matter and antimatter. No, if that's you not nothing. To, yeah, if you put them together, it's nothing. Put them together, it's nothing. If Let's just stop for a moment and think about what he has just said. He said if you put them together, it's nothing. It's intellectually embarrassing to have to even think about this, but if you have them, you have something, not nothing. No wonder the father of science, Sir Isaac Newton, said atheism is so senseless. If you break them apart, there's something. No, 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 no. I happen to know that when you've got matter, it's not nothing. Do you think you're a good person morally? Absolutely. How many lies have you told in your life? Uh, very, very few. You've ever stolen something, even if it's small? No. I can't believe you, because you just, just told me you're a liar. <laughs> have, you ever used, have you ever used God's name in vain? Definitely. Why would you do that? Well, because we all do it, because it's part of the lingo. But why? Would you ever use your mother's name as a cuss word in place of S-H-E? Would you do that? Um... I don't think I've done that, but no, I You might. wouldn't. It would be a might. horrible thing to do. Because yeah. you honor your mother, but you don't honor the God that gave you a mother and gave you life. But I don't believe in a God. I mean, it's quite, it's fine. I know. That's why I'm talking to you. You're called an unbeliever. Yeah. That's why I love talking. Yeah. One to go and appreciate your honesty. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I'm sure I have. You had sex before marriage? <laughs> yes. So, Mike. Here's a quick summation. You've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on judgment. Day. Yeah, I'm not worried one bit. I actually think hell might be a more interesting place to be. It might have some more interesting characters. And anyway, what am I going to do in heaven? What am I going to do? Sit there for kind of infinity? There's no pleasure in hell. All pleasure comes from God. And the Bible promises when God's kingdom comes to this earth, when we inherit the earth and the curse is taken off, with no earthquakes, diseases, famines, pains, tsunamis, suffering, and death, we'll be given new bodies like Jesus had when he rose from the dead, but never get sick or diseased or age, then we're going to have pleasure forevermore. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 tells us that there's nothing we see in creation that's anywhere near as incredible as what God has got in store for those that love him. I'm not interested in that. Anyway, I think you've had my two or three minutes. Give me one more minute. Okay. One more Please. question. Go on. Oh, God, right? It's all a waste of time. You should be much better, you know, surfing or something like that. Than I'm, you know, messing around with just superstitious nonsense. Okay, could you give me one minute? No, I'm done. Really? Go on, one more question. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Look, 
I went to a Catholic primary school. They were utterly evil, the people there. So don't give me any nonsense about good people and God and all of that. You know, you'd be much better to forget about God, enjoy life, be a good person, and end of story. Yeah. Really good to see you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, good to meet thanks, you. thanks for your patience with me. I really appreciate it. No, it's okay. It's yeah, you know what they are? In and Out cards. It's the best burgers in California. You'll love them. Oh, They're really nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. My husband's a militant atheist. I I apologise. <laughs> Can I give you a book for him that he might enjoy? Can I show you on camera? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Mike, it's called Scientific Facts in the Bible. You'll enjoy it. Let me give it to you, okay? Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, I wrote that book. Oh, did you? You might like to read it to him when he's tied down. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, yeah, no, I do. I'm much more of a believer than my husband. Well, I, I, Mike doesn't realize this. I do pray on a regular basis. I pray for him as well. Yeah, well we will too. So. A lot of people be praying for you. And Mike, you don't realize this, but I love you, I care about you, and I want to see you in heaven, not in hell. You know, I care about you. You seem a nice guy, but I just honestly, spend your time enjoying life. Work hard, play hard, enjoy life. Don't worry about religion. It's nonsense. It's very kind of you. I I pray for him privately. Yeah. So well, we will too. Uh, I yes, I appreciate that. Maybe just something you said now might sort of resonate in his subconscious that one day he sort of sees that you know his views are open to questioning. Yeah. Well, I gave him some something to think about. I think you did. Yeah. I think you did, and that's really nice what you guys are doing here because I think faith is really important because. It helps us feel, I don't know, like there's meaning in life, have a sense of stability. Have, and have a, hope in your death. And have hope. Well, in death, but also day to day, I think. I think believing in God gives us a sense of security and safety that there's someone looking after us, keeping an eye on us. Um, you ever read the Bible? I don't. Um, I haven't read the Bible, but I, I have been, I do go to church because... Um, my my stepmother was Catholic, and I went to church with her, and I still continue to go to church. Well, but I will read this. Do you have the Gospel of John? What's your name? Uh, Connie. Connie, yes. let me give you a let me give you a Gospel of John. Okay. You know what a Gospel of John is? Um, yes, I think so. I do. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's a very unusual one. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Open it up. That is unusual. <laughs> Connie. Yeah. Let me just share something with you to see if it stirs up your interest. Did you know in the Old Testament God promised he would destroy death? And in the New Testament we're told Harry did it. Did you know that? No, no. Have you ever heard the gospel? Well, I, I haven't heard it, but obviously I know of it. Yeah. Well, let me share it with you for one minute. You got one minute or not? Well, I better go, but I, I promise I will have a look at these. And Please do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He's off. Yeah, take the time to read Because we're um, obviously tourists here and we've got a program for it. And let me give you something else. It's our YouTube channel. It's got 259 million views. Oh, wow. And, and you might like to watch it. You'll enjoy it. Okay. Nice to meet you, Connie. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast. The Evidence Study Bible. 200 of the most commonly asked questions for the Christian faith and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. If you've never seen when demons try hard to stop the gospel, you've got to see it. You can watch it right now by clicking up to the left. I'm sorry.
Mixing God's Word with man's ideas. This is Ken Ham, author of the family commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. The Israelites in the Bible were often guilty of mixing pagan ideas with the worship of God. And it led to disastrous results as the nation was judged for spiritual adultery. Sadly, many Christians do a similar thing today. They mix man's ideas about the past with what God's word teaches. They elevate man's sinful opinions above the teaching of the Bible. And it's disastrous. When you mix man's ideas with God's word, it's God's word that usually gets radically changed. And change in one area leads to change in other areas. Instead of mixing man's word with God's word, let's start with the absolute authority, God's word. Learn more about standing on God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or find a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. And now, Shining... Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. We're now about to begin our fifth session in our study on the holiness of God and what is ironic about this and perhaps even maddening to you is that all the way up until this point in our study, I have not begun to define the meaning of the word holy. I've used it. I've tried to stress the importance of it. We've seen the traumatic influence it communicates. We've seen how it relates to justice and to the potential insanity of a man like Martin Luther. But what exactly does the Bible mean by the word holy? I notice in our own language and in our own vocabulary, the term holy seems to be used among us, particularly among Christians, 
as a synonym for moral purity or for righteousness. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it may be a little bit misleading. Because in the scriptures, there are two primary or basic meanings to the word holy. And I really shouldn't say two primary. There's one primary and one secondary, two major meanings, if you will, of the term holy. The secondary meaning of this word in Scripture is that which refers to personal righteousness and purity. But the primary meaning of the word holy means separate. or if you will, theological apartheid. That which is holy is that which is other, O-P-H-E-R, that which is different from something else. And so when the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, to refer to his magnificence, to refer to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything that there is in the creaturely realm. Again, the simplest way to discuss this is that that which is holy is that which is different. Look through your Bible sometime and see how the term holy is used as an adjective. Not only is God described as holy, we hear about the Holy Spirit, the Holy One of Israel. We hear about holy ground, holy vessels, holy moments. In fact, the anthropologists and sociologists have studied human experience and noticed that all people have some sense of holy time and holy space. Think back to your childhood, to that special place where you wanted to go when your life was troubled. Maybe it was to your room. Maybe it was to a little cozy section in the woods or in the lawn under your favorite tree. Whenever you were depressed or distressed or your parents hollered at you, you wanted to go, go grab the, the kitty cat and go sit and cry, you went to a certain place. And that place took on special significance to you. Every year, there's one day in the year that is special in your life. It's your birthday, where you celebrate a moment in time that has a special importance to you. And during the course of the year, we as people celebrate what we call what? Holidays. And a holiday means a holy day, a day that is different from the ordinary days, that is special, that's set apart for a particular kind of remembrance. Sacred space, sacred time, sacred things are all a part of our lives. I remember when I was teaching a course in seminary many, many years ago where I committed the unpardonable sin of a seminary professor. I lost my temper with a student. I mean, I, let me be candid with you. Sometimes, you know, your students say to, 
I don't want to ask a, a, a dumb question. And I had Chris say, now, look, don't ever be embarrassed to ask me a question. The only dumb question is the one you're really afraid to ask. I mean, any question that you have, it's important to you. Uh, it's important to me. And I really believe that, that I should take seriously any question that a student raises. But every now and then, ladies and gentlemen, you really do get a dumb question. <laughs> and uh, and it, it is my task as a professor to, again, treat the student with dignity. But I had a student once that made me lose it. I was lecturing on the Lord's Supper. And his question was not so much a question as an expression of unbridled cynicism. He put his hand up and I acknowledged it and he said, what's the big deal about bread and wine? Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Coca-Cola? That's when I lost it. I just felt this rage blowing up out of my soul. He graded my sensitivities when he said that, and instead of giving a polite, genteel, professorial response to him, I said, you want to know why we don't have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Coca-Cola at Holy Communion? Because Jesus never consecrated peanut butter and jelly or Coca-Cola. I swear to kill him. <laughs> Why? Because he had just profaned with his question. Something that was precious and holy in my experience. But what is it that makes the bread and the wine so special? What is it that makes any moment in history so special? What is it that makes a piece of real estate holy ground? Why is it that Noah marked the spot where he landed with and built an altar, and Abraham built an altar to God? Why is it that we are drawn to take something that is common and make it extraordinary because of its significance? It's not because of the intrinsic value of these objects. But what makes something sacred, what makes something holy, is the touch of God upon When the one who himself is other and different touches that which is ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. When he touches you, you become uncommon. And so the difference between the profane and the holy is the difference between the common and the uncommon, between the earthy and the heavenly. Not too long ago, I saw a study of phobias in the United States where the 10 most common phobias were listed, the things that people are most frightened about. You know, fear of cats, fear of you know, claustrophobia, fear, fear of crowded spaces and so on. Fear of death. You know what the number one fear of was, incidentally, of American people? The number one phobia? The fear of standing in front of a group and giving a talk like I'm doing right now. It's awful. But there is a phobia called xenophobia. 
How many of you have never heard that word before? Xenophobia. Okay, those of you who don't have your hands on, I'm going to call to ask you to give a... <laughs> i got a whole lot more hands up in the air. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers or foreigners. We have a tendency to be frightened by people whose customs are different from us. And the supreme form of xenophobia that we have is our fear of the living God because he is so different from us. He is high and exalted. One of the most fascinating studies that I've ever read and I would commend to you for your uh, careful attention is a book that appeared early in the 20th century by a German theologian who was also an anthropologist. His name was Rudolf Otto, and he wrote a very little book, but a, a book that many theologians consider one of the most important books of the 20th century. Very skinny little book, and the original title was called simply Das Heilige, translated into the English under the title The Idea of the Holy. And what Otto did was this that I found so interesting, was that he went around and he examined people from different cultures, aborigines, uh, Europeans, different people, and tried to find out what they regarded as holy or sacred in their culture. And then he did studies phenomenologically to see what the normal human reactions are to the holy. And then after making this study, he tried to distill the essence of human experience of the holy and come up with some conclusions. And one of the conclusions, he used to do this by inventing uh, phrases to describe these things. And when, if you would ask Rudolf Otto, Mr. Dr. Otto, what is the holy? The answer he gave was this, that the holy is the mysterium tremendum. I have a Latin phrase for everything. Mysterium tremendum. Now what does he mean by that? He said that the experience that we have of the holy is an experience of something very strange and impossible to penetrate and to fathom. It is mysterious, but it is also powerful. And this awesome, mysterious power provokes a sense of fear within us. Listen to how Otto describes it. This what he calls the awful mystery. He says this, the feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship, or it may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were thrillingly vibrant and resonant until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. Can you relate to that? Everybody in this room has had those pregnant moments of awareness of the presence of God, haven't you? They're not part of our ordinary 
daily experience. Ordinary experience, even for the most devout Christian, is basically profane. We're not flooded every second in our soul with this acute sense of the presence of God. And yet every Christian knows what it means to have that precious moment of awareness of the presence of God. But it's fleeting. He says it may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions or lead to the strangest excitements to intoxicated frenzy to transport into ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink to an almost grisly horror and shuddering and so on. It describes the fact that not everybody responds in the same way to an awareness of the holy. Some people become whirling dervishes in all kinds of flamboyant activity. Other people are moved to absolute silence and contemplation. But what he detected in this study of the holy is this, that across the board, throughout varying civilizations, the basic response of human beings to whatever they consider holy to be holy is a response of ambivalence. Ambivalence meaning this, that we have conflicting feelings about the holy. That there is something about the holiness of God that attracts us. But there's also something about the holiness of God that repels us and frightens us. On the one hand, it fascinates, and on the other, it terrifies. Have you ever wondered about the the way in which we, we sometimes like to scare ourselves. Little kids want to get together and tell ghost stories. Have you seen them do that? I remember when my son was a little boy, he wanted to sleep out in the woods behind our, our place in Ligonier. And so one of the college students said, I'll take you up there in the woods. And they went up and they pitched a tent and they got their sandwiches and flashlights and canteens and went up there about midnight. And at midnight, you know, they got the bedrolls out. And, and my son says to the college student, Joe, he said, yeah, he said, Tell me a ghost story. <laughs> so Joe started telling about the guy who lost his liver, you know, and went around, I want my liver back. <laughs> and uh, everybody's heard that ghost story. And, and so my son listens to this, and he's fascinated by it. And when Joe finished the story, my son looked at him and said, Joe, he said, you know, I may be sleeping out here tonight. Isn't such a good idea. <laughs> Joe said, that's all right. You just go to sleep. And so they were quiet for a few minutes, and my son had the opportunity to sit, concentrate his mind on the ghost story, on the noises of the woods and the things that go bump in the night. And he lasted about 10 more minutes until they were down knocking at our back door, asking if they could come in. Do you know that people go to Disney World in Orlando and pay money to be frightened? Isn't that strange that we have this dualistic attitude toward the holy? I like to remember the old radio program. Some of you with the snow on the roof will remember those uh, wonderful days of yesteryear when the Lone Ranger, you know, would uh, come riding down the road or we listened to the soap operas in the afternoon. Do you remember them, ladies? Huh? Uh, young Dr. Malone and Ma Perkins and Helen Trent and our gal Sunday and, and uh, uh, backstage wife, Larry said to Mary, Mary. And Mary said to Larry, 
Larry. That's what we were. <laughs> you remember? Huh? Pepper Young's family. How many of you remember them? Huh? They were terrific. Well, at nighttime, you had the adventure stories, like Superman and, and so on. And, and through the week, we would have cops and robbers, gangbusters, Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons. And, and there was a movie that was particularly scary, or a program particularly scary, called Suspense. But the scariest program of all scary programs on the radio in the 40s, ladies and gentlemen, came on Sunday night. And the lead-in to this radio program featured the sound of this creaky vault door opening in an echo chamber. And it opens up, and, you know, and you're just, your hair is standing on end before the thing starts, and the voiceover comes with the announcer's baritone voice saying, Inner Sanctum. Huh? You know, how many of you remember that? Okay. I mean, they didn't even have to start the story, and everybody was scared already. What does inner sanctum mean? Inner sanctum means literally within the holy. See, the marketing geniuses of the entertainment world discovered somehow that the most terrifying thing they could come up with for people would be to expose them to a program about the holy. See, that's why we have a tendency to keep our distance, a safe distance from the character of God. Because even though we're attracted to it, on the one hand, on the other, we are repelled by it. And I'm going to talk in our next session about how that manifested itself concretely and specifically in the life of Jesus. Where people were both drawn to him and terrified of him. Yet it is this element that we fear that is at the very core of the character of God. And for us to understand it, beloved, is set forth for us in the New Testament as the priority of learning. I ask my students in the seminary a simple question from the Bible. I say, everybody's aware of the the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer can be divided up according to literary categories from the formal address to the petitions to the closing. And I ask my students, what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Do you know what? Don't answer it out loud, but think in your own mind. Do you know what the first petition is of the Lord's Prayer? Remember the scene. The disciples have observed Jesus in his astonishing power, and they come to him, and they notice this link between his power, and his devotion to prayer. And so they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. When you pray, I want you to pray like this. Our Father with art in, who art in heaven, then what? 
Hallowed be thy name. Now, here's the question. Is the hallowed be thy name part of the form of address, or is the hallowed be thy name the first petition? See, if it were part of the formal address, Jesus would have said this. He would have said, when you pray, say this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. But that's not what he said. He said, when you pray, I want you to pray this. The first thing I want you to pray for when you get on your knees is that the name of God would be treated as sacred, as holy. Repeatedly, the Bible says of God, holy is his name. Another little quiz I have with my students, I said this, suppose in this day and age in the United States of America where we've had such a flood and proliferation of legislation in the land that nobody can keep up with all the new laws that are being added to the, to the law books every year, suppose somebody came along and said, hey, we're going to start all over again. We're going to throw out all the lawyers, all the laws, even the Constitution, or start fresh. But your job is to write the new Constitution. Your job is to write the new Bill of Rights. And the game plan is this, that all future laws in this nation's history will be judged by their conformity to ten laws that you draw up. So you only have ten laws to put down on the books. What ten would you write? How many of you would waste one of your ten by making a law against coveting. How many of you would include in your top ten a law that children ought to respect and obey their parents? Most of you would probably include a law prohibiting murder and theft. But would anybody use up one of their top ten laws by saying that it's an absolute law of the land that no one ever, ever, ever takes the name of God in vain. Ladies and gentlemen, when God wrote a constitution for a national government, that made his top ten. That incredible. Two years ago, I read an astonishing article in Time magazine about an incident that took place in Maryland. A truck driver had been arrested for drunken and disorderly conduct. And when the police officers came to arrest him, this this truck driver was so abusive that they were furious by the time they got the guy to the station house, and they wanted to throw the book at him. So they got him up before the magistrate, and they talked about all the, the unkind things that this truck driver had said about the policeman on the way down. Now, for the for the uh, misdemeanor of, of disorderly conduct, the severest penalty that the magistrate could impose was a $100 fine and 30 days in jail. But he wanted to nail this guy, to throw the book at him. And so he resurrected an antiquated law that had never been repealed and was still on the books of the statutes of, of Maryland that prohibited public blasphemy. And the penalty for public blasphemy had been another 30 days in jail, and another $100 fine. So the the judge imposed upon the truck driver $200 fine, 60 days in jail. 
and this made Time Magazine's editorial because the editor of Time was outraged that in this day and age, somebody could suffer the cruel and unusual punishment of paying a $100 fine and spending 30 days in jail merely for publicly blaspheming the holy name of God. We've come a long way. 22 years ago, the word virgin was not permitted to be uttered on the television because it was too provocative and suggestive. Censorship has changed so much in our day that movies may freely use erotic language, scatological language, and blasphemous language, and that's okay. But still, there are rules and regulations for broadcast television that prohibits the use of certain purient and obscene sexual language. But it is still permitted on the television set to use the name of God as a common curse word. Jesus said, you know what I want you to pray for? I want you to pray that my Father's name will be regarded as holy. He said, then I want you to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So what I want my people to be praying for is that my reign, my sovereignty, my authority as king will be honored and recognized in this world. And that will people will do my will on this planet, even as the angels in heaven right now obey my will. You know, Jesus doesn't say so, but I'm convinced there's a, a logical progression here. I don't think that the kingdom of God will ever come on this earth or that the will of God will ever be done on this earth until or unless the name of God is revered by his people. How is it possible for people to honor a king and at the same time desecrate his name? You know, it's not like the Jewish people had some name fetish or that they believed that there was some magic associated with the utterance of a word. But they understood this as God understood it, that if we have a cavalier, casual attitude toward the name of God, that reveals more deeply than anything else we say about our deepest attitude toward the God of the name. Let me tell it like it is. If you use the name of God as a common curse word, you are at root a profane person. You have no respect for the holiness of God. And I urge you to think before you let that word pass over your lips again in a frivolous manner because God will not tolerate the desecration of his name. He made it in the top ten. And so Jesus says that you would pray that the name of God would be holy, that it would be treated as different, as special, as extraordinary as exalted because he is different and special and exalted.
called to be holy. We are called to be different. We are called to bear witness to the style that one finds in God, a style that is driven by the second meaning of holiness, which is righteousness. When God says, be holy, for I am holy, he is saying, be different from the normal standards of this world. I want you to express and to show what righteousness is in this land. That's the task of the Christian, to mirror and to reflect the character of God to a dying world. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we ask your pardon for the way in which we have profaned your name in word and in deed and in thought. And we pray that you would give us a holy respect for you, that in our land, to some degree and by some measure, we may see the manifestation of your kingship and your will being done. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Archaeology, it confirms God's word. This is Ken Han inviting you to experience the Bible at the Creation Museum. King Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings in the Bible because he loved and obeyed God. Well, during some recent digging in an ancient trash dump, archaeologists found a tiny clay seal. And this seal read, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This little seal was stamped by a ring born on the king's finger. This find confirms God's word and what it says about Hezekiah. He was real, a real king, the son of Ahaz, who ruled in Judah in real history. We shouldn't be surprised when archaeology confirms God's word. After all, God's word is true, so this is exactly what we should expect. Discover more about why we can trust the Bible at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to tour our high-tech creation museum at AnswersRadio.com. No grace and peace. No grace and peace come to you from God and God alone. So we see here through this triune reference that John is communicating to us that Jesus is worthy of worship because he's God. And that in and of itself is enough. Worship Christ because he's God. He's not like God. He's not close to God. He's not almost God. Jesus Christ is God. And that is why we worship him. By the way, if we worship Jesus and he is anything other than God, then we are guilty of idolatry because God is the only one who's worthy of worship, which is why Christ allows his apostles to fall and worship at his feet. Worship is reserved for God and for God alone. The Big Bang, proven science? This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular faith-building series, The New Answers Books. A few years ago, the media excitedly announced proof of the Big Bang. Many Christians were troubled by this, since the Big Bang directly contradicts God's word. But whenever we hear of a find that contradicts God's word, well, it's the scientists, not God, who are wrong. And that's what happened. Months later, scientists announced the proof they'd supposedly found for part of the Big Bang model was probably actually caused by dust. 
It wasn't proof of any part of the Big Bang model after all. This just shows that news reports shouldn't shake our faith in God's word. The Bible's always true from the very first verse. Yes, we can trust God's word. Discover more about why when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. There are resources for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com. That's all that for Trippy Toll Radio. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.